Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. First Thessalonians 4. All right, as I told you, we're moving into the practical part of the letter. We, we've been working through... Uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, and uh, today we come to uh, the practical portion from here on out, which is the next two chapters. Um, do you remember in 2011 there was a, an earthquake right off the coast of Japan, about a 9.0, and it created a tsunami, and the tsunami hit the coastal cities uh, of Japan, and um, maybe you remember that a nuclear reactor respond to that. Do you remember all of that? So it was uh, March of 2011, and it was a a 9.0. The earthquake led to a tsunami, and that uh, sent a 33-foot wall of water crashing into the coast. Can you imagine? And they think that the wave went as far as six miles in. And uh, the tsunami led to a meltdown of one of the one of the reactors at the Fukushima nuclear uh, power plant which created a 12-mile no-fly zone around the plant. Okay, so just follow this for a moment. Something that originated in the core of the earth disrupted the water, and it weaponized the water. Um, it ravaged the water, ravaged the land. The land, uh, when it was struck, caused the buildings to collapse, and that polluted the air, and it also displaced hundreds of thousands of people. And so that this is like... A massive ripple effect. Does that make sense? And so, um, water in its place is a beautiful thing, right? Water in its place is a beautiful thing. Um, probably some of you have been to a beautiful beach. I know people that don't like beaches, and I don't know what's I don't know what's wrong with them. It's it's beautiful watching. That. Maybe it's too hot. Maybe it's I don't like the sand. But there's beauty in looking at the ocean, isn't it? It's cathartic. Cathartic actually means to be washed over. And it, it feels like that at times when you stand or sit, preferably looking at the ocean and hearing the waves crash and not doing work. Anybody know what I'm talking about? There's something beautiful about that, and it's it's great when you can get the time to be able to do that. And uh, you know that the the water is also nourishing. It um, it provides uh, water for our grass and our plants and for us. Right, and it's it's uh, nourishing, has purpose, and it's also pleasurable. You can uh, get a cool drink of water on a hot day, like when it's really hot out. And even if you don't like water normally, if it's really hot and you're parched, nothing hits the spot quite like that. You can get a cool glass of water, and it it uh, meets you in a beautiful way on a sunny day. And if if you if you have to, even if you have to, you could go swimming on a hot day like that. But when it moves beyond its boundaries, water becomes destructive, and it's the same thing with fire. Today we've come to a passage where Paul talks about uh, sex, and sex was given by God for intimacy and procreation, and it's good within its context, but when it moves beyond those boundaries, it becomes destructive and people get hurt. Are you with me? Okay. Um, if you're uncomfortable this morning, this isn't my favorite subject to talk about, I'll tell you that. 
But um, I just want you to know that God cares about all areas of our lives. And the reason that um, this is such an important topic is because this is uh, created by God and it's, it's powerful, but it needs to be contained within the limits he set up. And when that doesn't happen, there's a lot of repercussions that follow that. Within its living, it's good, but when it moves beyond those boundaries, it's destructive and people get hurt. You can see similar devastation where faith has been broken through adultery and how uncommitted sex has produced fatherless children and rape has used power to steal pleasure and sexual abuse has damaged the innocence of children and how sex has perpetuated slavery even today through human trafficking. Okay, So you see that when it's outside of its bounds, it can become a destructive thing. And the secular solution is let's remove all the restrictions and all of the stigma associated with it, and then all the bad will go away. That's the secular solution. In other words, they turn their nose at God's law and say the problem is that we have a law regarding this in the first place, and that's why there are hurt feelings and people losing their innocence. If you take away the law, then you take away all the measuring mark of why things have gone wrong. And uh, that little experiment is called the sexual revolution. And so we think that uh, it'll all go away. We've arrived at this moment on the heels of the sexual revolution. Intellectuals thought that man's biggest problem was that we kept our appetites under restraint. And we, we have this thing, and I want you to be aware of this because it comes up, it pops up in a lot of different areas, called the hydraulic effect of emotions and pleasure. If I don't do something with this, I'm going to explode. If I don't respond in a certain way with my emotions, I don't know what's going to happen. And so it's this hydraulic effect, like there's pressure building up. Uh, Theodore Dalrymple wrote a book called Life at the Bottom, and he was talking about, he was a prison psychiatrist, and so he talked to like 10,000 prisoners. And one of the things that, um, one of the things that happened was in one of his conversations, this guy who uh, ended up killing his girlfriend, he said to Dalrymple, he said, Doc, if I hadn't killed her, I, didn't, I don't know what I would have done. As if there was some worse fate that might have happened to him if he didn't respond to this hydraulic pressure that was building within him. Like, what would have happened? And uh, we apply the same thing to uh, sexual desire, is that if we don't respond to it, we just don't know what is going to happen. And so intellectuals have thought that we could remove the, the boundaries and then repressed people would be a lot happier. The kingdom would come, utopia would be ours, brave new world. And those who believe this have to close their eyes both to history and to the present results for the last 50 years because everything has shown that pleasure and joy is not abounding more and more, but rather pain and sadness is the side effect of casting off all restraint. And so we see that a lot in the effects. The attack on the, the institution of marriage and the institution of the family was a deliberate erosion. I don't know if you know that, but there, was, there were people that deliberately set out, those who uh, did the studies regarding sex, I think Kinsey is one of them, and um, I'm, I'm having trouble remembering the other ones. I didn't plan on mentioning this, but, but their idea was to undermine marriage the institution of marriage, and all the usual sexual boundaries in order to have things our way. We want to cast off all the prudish and puritanical ideas that we had from yesterday and get rid of that Victorian hangover, and let's get back to really 
living the way that we should, and things have not gone well. It was deliberate, and it's come through education and art and literature and music and television and movies. In the living memory, some of us here remember, and you can still see reruns of this, uh, when on television, married people slept in separate beds. Anybody remember that? I thought that was the strangest thing because I already knew my parents slept in the same bed. But I saw some of those shows, and they had their twin beds. Never the two shall meet. I don't know. Uh, But you remember days like that when it was on television, and nobody talked about being pregnant. They talked about being with child. And I'm not suggesting we go back to days, but would you consider the contrast of that? You have popular television series like Game of Thrones where there is pornography visualized on television. And I bet believers even eat that stuff up. And to me, that, uh, is, that ought to send up red flags in our, uh, in our uh, minds, in our hearts. Carl Truman uh, wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He says, sex now pervades every aspect of life from elementary education to commercials to Congress and the Supreme Court. Everywhere one looks, the erotic has triumphed. So we've, we've taken it out of the shadows, and certainly there's a hypocrisy to the Victorian thing, like sleeping in separate beds and all of that. There's a hypocrisy to that because that's not really the real. Okay? But the pendulum has swung 180 degrees, and now everything seems to go, or almost everything. There's a few last bastions that still stand, but I would expect that in time, because there's no transcendent reason not to, those will fall too. You know what I'm talking about? When Dalrymple was asked, what's the next great move? He said he thinks incest will, the stigma on incest will go. And that, to me, that's scary. A scary thought that these kinds of things are toppling because they don't have a reason beyond ourselves to say those things are wrong. We ought not to do them. Okay, So that's kind of where we're at. And this is the legacy of men like Freud who thought that man's nature was essentially sexual. In other words, life is really all about that. No wonder he had all of these complexes that would come from our sexual nature that he dreamed up. A lot of Freud has been debunked. And I would tell you that Paul would disagree with Freud on that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, he says, Life is not about sex and the erotic. The body is for the Lord. Listen, the body is for the Lord. It's meant not for sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.13, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Paul is not saying that sex is not something that is right in the right context. Sex is right in the right context. He's saying that it's not the primary thing in life. Our body must be brought under the control of the Lord. And so if it's Paul versus Freud, then it's Paul for my money. How about yours? Let's listen to what he has to say because he knows what he's talking about having received revelation from the Lord. Culturally, we've cast off restraints, and we thought that we could, have, we could have it all. We could have all this, but it's not been good for us culturally. I just want you to know the answer isn't griping about the rising rate of children born to unwed mothers. That's really not the answer, because these things are unlikely to change without people having a reason behind it to, uh, of why sex is for committed lifelong relationships. I don't think that we need to go back to the days when we couldn't say the word pregnancy on television or separate beds or all of that, but we are living in the reaction to that, and the reaction has come in force. 
Here's the other thing I want to um, say about this. I think this is important to know is that we are, I don't think we can say that our society is worse than the Canaanite society of ancient Israel, okay? Um, I don't think that we can say that right now we're worse than the Greek societies were. Plato and um, Lucian, they believed, in, and there were others, they're just figureheads of this, they believed that not only was um, sex outside of marriage okay, but also homosexual relationships and pederasty, which is the same thing as um, pedophilia. Those guys thought that was all okay. And so to say that we're where they are, we're not there yet. You can't say that this is the worst that humanity's ever seen. It's not. But we're on a trajectory away from God. We're on a trajectory. We've fallen from heights, and we need to consider the heights from which we've fallen as a culture. Those societies, Roman societies, Julius Caesar was one uh, as well. And um, Nero not only married his sister, but he also married a man. Um, so same-sex marriage is not a new thing either. Um, and then Caligula was terrible and had great, um, wouldn't call them great, that's not great in the sense of big orgies would take place in Rome, part in the, having to bring that up on a Sunday morning. But all of those things were true in the ancient world, and but they're pre-Christian. And here's the point that I'm trying to make here is the restraint that has been cast off by so many uh, in the ancient world was the result of Christian preaching bringing these destructive sexual forces under the control of the Lord. Do you hear what I'm saying? Is the reason why we feel like we've gone away, we're, we're in decline, is because we've now moved away from the very thing that cultures move towards out of allegiance to Christ, which is that God owns the body, that we, that we need to respond to him in the right and proper way. Okay, so... Now we can see a regression and not an advance. We tend to think that we are more sophisticated now and we can handle all this. We've got contraception and we've got ways to deal with uh, sexually transmitted diseases and, and we've got abortion. Nobody, we ought not celebrate that. Okay? And all of those things are in place so that we can live the lives we want to. Okay? You, you understand what I mean by that? Those things allow people to live the life that they think that they should. And so now we've reverted to a pre-Christian practice and attitude towards sex shows that we're descending now as a culture into paganism. We've turned away from Christ as a culture, and we've turned towards paganism. And I think it's up to the church. And the sad part is many of these things creep into the church too. That we we feel like, oh, we're just going along with what culture says is okay. We're just a little bit of a step behind, and so it's not quite as bad. But I challenge you today to think that God has different standards regarding these things. Here's a couple books I want to mention. There's a lot of people noticing this, and they're not all Christian. Let me mention two non-Christians that are have written books regarding this that I think if you're a reader, they're, they're worth considering. The first one is Dalrymple's uh, book, Life at the Bottom. He has an essay there called Tough Love, and he talks about the, jeal- the sexual jealousy that creates a lot of domestic violence that led to people both suicidal and beat up that ended, in his, ended up in his hospital ward and in his prison. So life at the bottom, uh, I don't think, if you read that, I don't think you'll be disappointed. Uh, you'll be disappointed in our culture. <laughs> I don't think you'll be disappointed with having spent the time to do that. He actually says in that book that after the sexual revolution, 
the leading cause of domestic violence in Britain is twofold. It's alcohol and sexual jealousy. He said that, I think he, if I remember the figure right, he said that accounts for about 70% of domestic violence is sexual jealousy and alcohol. And if those two things are combined, then it gets real bad. You understand? And, and here's the neat thing about this is that when we really devote our lives to Christ, those two things are taken care of. We live right before God, and those things don't need to be front and center, okay? So Dalrymple, he's said that he's an atheist, but if you listen to him, you'd think he was talking Christian because that's just kind of how he writes. The second one is a new book that's out within the last couple of years by Louise Perry, and she's a, a British journalist in her 30s, and she used to be a feminist. I think she still considers herself a feminist and an atheist, but she wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, and uh, she talks about all the negative side effects that have come as a result of the sexual revolution. And she's writing it from a non-Christian point of view, and what she's saying is common sense to us who are Christian. Okay? All right? And then um, you're starting to move on the spectrum more towards our position. Mary Eberstad, who was a, um, she's a, like a prime figure within the Catholic Church, she wrote a book called Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Led to Identity Politics. That's provocative. You might want to check that one out, Primal Screams. And one of the things she talks about in there is how they found out that the lone wolf theory of wolf existence is bunk. Did you know that? That wolves don't really, they run in packs. And it used to be thought that wolves ran in random packs, but they don't. They run with their families. There's a hierarchy within the wolf community, and they found that out. And so she talks about how that's the case with elephants and other animals, that there's a natural family dynamic to it. And she's saying that, look, how as humans are we not getting the point? Okay, so Primal Screams uh, by Eberstad. And then there's Carl Truman, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. And then Hillary Morgan Farrar, if you're a mom or a dad, mostly a mom, Mama Bear Apologetics, Guide to Sexuality. That'd be a good one if you're a parent to think about how you can address some of these issues. The most important book that you can read about this is the Bible. Yes. Wisdom going back 4,000 years will be the best commentary of all on where we've come as a culture. Okay, so we're going to read that in just a moment. But I want to mention that God has something to say about sex Paul was writing to a culture that was probably more sexually immoral than ours and perverse, at least in acceptability, if not availability, when we do have the Internet. But there was little social stigma to having mistresses, visiting prostitutes, practicing pedophilia. Even homosexuality was widely practiced in first century Greece, and it, cons- it was considered acceptable. In fact, Greco-Roman religion didn't concern themselves with rules of sexual ethics. I don't know if you know this, but the idea that religion should have rules, that's a Judeo-Christian thing first. Okay? The other the Greco the Greek gods, they were doing they were as moral as people were. More. And so there there wasn't a lot of incentive to not do things that brought you pleasure. And so you're not finding that, like these restrictions against sexual ethics or having sexual ethics in Greek religion. But what the preaching of the gospel did was to bring to bear upon believers in Thessalonica that God has a design for marriage and that all other sexual acts are prohibited. That is the nature of the passage we're going to look at today. 
And there are others like this, and there are others that talk about the other side, like Song of Solomon, which celebrates intimacy as created by God. But here, the Scripture challenges believers to sexual purity. And sexual purity, let me define that, is no sex outside of marriage and sex only with a partner within marriage. Okay, boy, it got quiet in here, right? That's not uh, probably a statement on anybody's feelings on this, but it's serious business here, this. And so to think about it and to talk about it, we need to understand where this is coming from. I want to mention here as we look at this that Paul's tone is not scolding, okay? So uh, he's not scolding them for sins that they've committed. He's dealing with a church that lives in a very sexualized culture. Not only was it sexualized, but sexual sexuality was part of religion. One of the ways that you could worship a god like Aphrodite was to go, instead of giving tithes, you paid a temple prostitute and you slept with her, and then the money went into the temple coffers. Okay, so religion was very sexualized. And so these things tended to be blurred, civic and religious and the sexual and the family. It all kind of got blurred and messy. Okay, and so Paul is dealing with this within the culture. And so he's not at this point rebuking them for anything. In fact, the interesting thing about this is as bold as he gets with his statements about the authority of the Lord, we don't find one imperative in this passage. He doesn't say to any of them, you must. He doesn't say that. But he does lay some things down that are very serious and worth considering. In fact, as I said, there's no forceful commands here. Paul instead refers back to a time in verse 2 when he was with them, and then he may have commanded them in this. But this is just a serious statement of purpose to live a holy life regarding sex and warning them about what will happen if they don't take this seriously. It is serious. Okay? Let's read, and then we'll talk about the parts of this passage as quickly as we can. That was all introduction, and the sermon is about the size of the introduction, so we're going good. All right? Verse 1, as for other matters, turning the page from all the things preceding this now to the practicalities. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know What instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified. He's going to clarify that. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy, a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Okay. So I want to mention in this first part that Paul is encouraging this church that he had spent very little time with to live in a certain way in order to please God. You remember he was there for three weeks that we know of, and then persecution arose, and he was forced out. He goes to Berea. From Berea, he goes to Athens. In Athens, he writes the letter back to Thessalonica. So these people haven't really fully been discipled. They've met the Lord. They've met Jesus. They're they're believers. But Paul wants to give them instructions about how their faith bears upon life within culture, just as he does us. Like, it's not enough for us to say, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus, and then go our way and be the typical American. No, before we're American, 
before where whatever our nationality is or our political party is, we are Christians. And that bears upon all this. So he's asking them to live a certain way. Okay, so look what it says. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. I'd like you to notice that word live. You may have, if you have the ESV or the King James or another more formal translation than the NIV, you'll probably have the word walk there. Do you see walk? Okay, the Greek word's peripateo, if you care. And this is the typical metaphor that Paul uses for the Christian life. Okay, he views life like a journey in a direction, just as we talked about this morning, setting the Lord Jesus before us, okay? Our life is a journey toward. Now, we already have Christ living in our heart. We already have intimacy with him, but our life is on a trajectory Godward. Are you with me? This is a spiritual journey, not a geographical journey, okay? Um, if you, can, you can do it while you're sitting down, in other words. It's a spiritual journey that's taking place towards the things of God, but he calls it a walk. And the interesting thing about journeys is that Each step that you take is built upon the previous step. And the decisions that we make today affect tomorrow. So that's important to keep in mind as he's instructing us how to live our lives in this sequential direction towards God that it requires that we recognize the decisions we make affect our tomorrow in him. And this is all implied by the word live, walk. It's also the idea that the Christian life is lived on the move. Now, I said you could do this sitting down, yes, but your life is not static in God. I think that you usually move one of two directions, no neutral. You're either moving towards him or away from him, okay? And talking about relational intimacy. I'm not saying you've lost your salvation. I I do believe that a person can, but I'm saying that in terms of our intimacy, we're either moving towards or drawing back, So I think that that's important to understand, that relationship is a relationship on the move. And you understand that life doesn't stop so that you can be religious, like the hustle and bustle of Anchorage and your job and whatever uh, whatever else it is that is going on in the world. It doesn't go on pause. Wait, Sunday morning's here. I need to go to church. So everything on pause. How many know that if there's going to be an opportunity for the devil to keep you from the Lord, he's going to find a way, right? And this life that we live, we're, not, we're living in a, a world that is on the move, and we have to make decisions in the midst of that. Life doesn't stop so you can be religious, and if you're going to be godly, it's going to be in the fray as you fight your battle to live for the Lord. It's going to require that you be holy while traveling through an unholy world where the world goes one direction and we go another. Can you be can you be a spiritual salmon? It's not in my notes, but can you be that? Can you swim against the current and live life against the current? That's the question. Okay, so he's encouraging them to live a certain way. If you're going to be godly, you've got to do it in the fray. It requires that you be holy while traveling. And it means, this word live here means to live or behave in a customary manner with the focus on continuity of action. So in other words, these things, as we live for God, they need to, the living needs to continue in a Godward direction, okay? 
So I'm teaching you, Paul says, I'm teaching you, or I'm reminding you how we instructed you to live in order to please God. So then we come to this idea of pleasing God. So living to please God is this first point, and, and God wants us to live for him. What does it mean to live to please God? Are we, are we trying here to earn our way into heaven by being good enough? Like if we can stack up our spiritual bricks high enough, then we can slip over the wall into the kingdom. Like we've got to be really good, and then, and then God will really love us. Is that what he's talking about? You see, uh, please, this word for please right here can mean win favor. This is how you ought to, and if it meant that, it would mean this is how you ought to live in order to win favor with God. But I want you to know that Christ has already given us granted favor, right? We're, we stand in his good standing because of what Christ has done, not because of what we've done. So please, in this context, doesn't exactly mean that. Here, it means to give pleasure or satisfaction by carrying out an important obligation. So how ought you to live in order to bring pleasure to God? Do you see that? That's different. We're not trying to win his favor. Now we're saying, God, what would make you really happy? That's different. Like it's not a matter of getting to heaven. It's a matter of saying, Lord, I love you with my life. That's different. So when we're living to please God, this is how we live. Sometimes these two get confused, and people think they're winning God's favor, but no, that's up to Christ. This is God taking pleasure in how we live because we've heard what he said about how we should live, and we've responded to it. Notice in verse 2 here, he says in verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to talk more about authority in just a moment, um, the authority of this, this word that God gives, but let me mention here the instructions were probably some of the very first things Paul taught when he was there. He's like, now you're Christians, okay, you who are Gentiles, you can't live like that anymore. And you who are Jewish, well, you know the ethics, you need to live those consistently. Okay, So he's calling them to behavioral change, and this is part of discipleship. Do you know that? That sounds like works salvation to some people, but it's not that God would require change and our participation in it is part of being a Christian, okay? So he does so by the authority of the Lord. Notice it says there, these instructions we gave you, um, probably it, it more accurately says by the Lord Jesus, but the implication is by the Lord Jesus is under his authority. These instructions that Paul is giving, they're not his have you ever read that passage in, I think it's 1 Corinthians, where he says, um, I'm saying this and not the Lord? Remember that? It's like he's saying, let me give you some good spiritual advice. These are more issues of wisdom than command, and, and this isn't necessarily command. But I think probably what he taught them before, he commanded them to live a certain way that would bring God pleasure. Okay? And so when we're talking about the authority, these are God's commands and not his Notice verses 3 through 7 here, he talks about living in God's will. First, living for God's pleasure, now living in God's will. In verse 3, he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should be sanctified. We hear that a lot in church, and you probably heard it if you went to church growing up, and I'm sanctified, and I'm bought with the blood, and filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'm on my way to heaven, and all the things that we sometimes say as Christians. But sometimes that kind of word gets blurry in our mind, doesn't it? What does it mean to be sanctified? And 
and we're not exactly sure what it means to be sanctified. But if we're to if we're to get it down to something that we can carry with us, it's to be made into saints or to be made holy. This is God's purpose in you. So when we say saint, sanctified, if you can substitute the word saint at the beginning of it, he wants to sanctify you. Okay, that helps. Maybe, maybe not. Okay, but notice uh, verse 3, this, this holy, this idea of holy keeps coming up. Verse 3, sanctified by, by avoiding sexual immorality. Verse 4, holy as the way in which you should control your body. Verse 7, holy is the calling of the Christian life. And verse 8, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God living in us, working holiness. Do you know when we say Holy Spirit, that spirit is actually describing the person or stating who the person is, that holy is the adjective describing what he's like and what he does. What does the Holy Spirit do? He does holiness. He works holiness within us. Okay? So that, that's not just an arbitrary name. That name for the Holy Spirit has a purpose when we walk with him. Let me go as quickly as I can, but I think this is really important. When I was growing up in church, um, we heard holiness a lot, and holiness referred mostly, at least in my mind, um, I don't know if this was a pastor's fault or the group of pastor's fault or if it was my inability to understand, but when I heard holy, we always thought in terms of what we don't do. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, Don't do this and don't do that, and then you can be holy. And he's holy because he doesn't smoke or swear or go uh, and drink or, or sleep with women who are not his wife, and therefore he's holy. You know, you can do or not do all of those things and still be unholy, right? Because it's not about primarily what you don't do. That's the, the first part of holiness. That's the response of holiness. So as I said, I don't know if it was communicated that way or if I just understood it, but I never saw the positive side. Holiness and sanctification is first about what we do, and that's been traded primarily in this concept for something that means what we don't do. And I think we forget a step in so doing, we're taking the power of God out of holiness. Like, why don't, why don't we do all those things? Sometimes we didn't even know. Like, why don't we do it? I don't know. But it's a, it's a wonderful way to feel really religious. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that there's not any no's in the Bible. There are. But I read recently in the imperatives, I think that the um, commands of the Lord outnumber, the do's com- outnumber the don'ts three to one. Did you know that? That's good, isn't it? Because it, ch- it challenges us to be on the positive side of things. And then I think a lot of times the negative will take care of itself. There are some don'ts in the Bible, but holiness is, first of all, dedication to God. It's dedication to God. We are holy to the Lord, separated. One of the ideas or concepts with holiness is to be separated. We are separated to the Lord, and in in a like way, we are separated from sin, but it's dedication to God out of love for God, a response to God is to come to him, leaving behind culture and all else that would have its um, have its way with us. So maybe I'm fighting a specter this morning that's no longer around, but the idea of holiness needs to be first dedication to 
God, and then that which leads to departure from other things. At least in principle, if not chronologically, we first are dedicating ourselves to the Lord, and then we're saying no to those other things. You hear what I mean by that? That we love God so much, we don't want to do anything that would wound his heart or hurt him or displease him. We love him so much that we're not going to go down a road that would create some kind of disjunction there or go against his vision for life or send somebody else the message that this is okay. Okay, So we avoid those things. So part of the reason our culture is turned away from the Bible's vision of sexual purity is that our culture is turned away from God. And if there's no God, there isn't enough strong enough reason for most people to live with any restraint whatsoever. Do you know that? Like part of the problem is, and this goes beyond the realm of sexuality, is that when God is not central, all the reasons for being good come down to your personal preferences. And that's, that's why we have these massive collisions of personalities within our world. We have restraint because God has said no, and sometimes we don't even understand the why of it, and it's okay that if we'll do what he said for us to do and not do what he said for us not to do, in time we'll see the wisdom of it. He will show us. Sometimes, when you're a kid, you don't know why there's these rules. Why? And your mom can explain it to you all day, and you still don't get it. It's because what you want has a louder voice than reason. Okay? So... But if you hang on long enough, you can see the wisdom in it. And if you'll do what God says you do, you'll spare, spare yourself a lot of heartache. So he says here, this is sanctification. Is God's will that you should be sanctified. You should avoid sexual immorality. What's that? That sounds bad. Maybe your translation has fornication there. We kind of know what that is a little bit more. But it means sexual intercourse of any kind outside of marriage. And a Greek word wouldn't surprise you. It's porneia. Sometimes people say that sexual immorality refers to um, visiting temple prostitutes, and this is one of the things that people are like on the boundary of really living for God. They don't want to. They don't want to submit in that area, and so they will say, "Well, what Paul's referring to is visiting shrine prostitutes. That you shouldn't do that." Well, that's not clear here. In other places, there are times where people had mixed religion and idolatry with sexuality, and Paul prohibits that. But here, he's not talking about that. In fact, the thing that we need to keep in mind, that Paul's prohibition was not against, that his prohibition was against sex outside of marriage. And you have to keep in mind that Paul is communicating Hebrew ethics from the Old Testament with Greek terms. And so there is a word for adultery. Did you know that? That's different. Sexual immorality is a broad umbrella category that refers to any unlawful or illicit sex. Okay? But we have a word for bestiality. We have a word for homosexuality. In fact, there's two different words depending on which role you play. And also, we have a word for adultery. And so what fornication covers or sexual immorality covers is sex outside of marriage any other sexual violation outside of marriage. Okay? So that's what it covers here in particular. And there's reason for that. There's reason for that. You'll have to remember that sexual consumption joined people as one before God. It's not a mere physical act, but a spiritual one. But we want to take all the 
sanctity out of it, and we want to take all of the sacramentalism out of it and say it's just a physical act. It's not just a physical act. God says that when people are joined in that way, they're joined as one. Okay, so this goes deeper than all of that. It's not, it's not just a prohibition on pleasure. It's limiting its destructive force because it's so powerful and has great consequences. You know, the potential of sex is that a new human being can come out of it. That's one of the potentials. There's unions of heart into one. There's the devastating hurt that can come from misuse. There's perpetual wondering of bodies and minds that can take fathers and mothers away from their families to the detriment of their children. There's some real nasty things, and I already mentioned some of the others that go along with the abuse of sexual immorality. Dalrymple says in his book, the sexual revolutionaries wanted to liberate sexual uh, relations from all but the merest biological content. Henceforth, such relations were not to be subject to regist- uh, restrictive bourgeois contractual arrangements or, heaven forbid, sacraments such as marriage. No social stigma was attached to any sexual contact conduct that had hitherto been regarded as reprehensible. The only criterion governing the acceptability of sexual relations was the mutual consent of those entering upon them. No thought of duty to others, one's own children, for example, was to get in the way of fulfilling a person's own desires. Carl Truman, in uh, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, he talks about how sexuality has been disconnected from the transcendent and shows its repercussions that it becomes abusive and tyrannical, and you lose yourself in it. I want you to notice all of this is tied to God because you might think, and this is a natural way of thinking, what does this have to do with being a Christian? What does that have to do with God? Well, it has everything to do with God because he created us and he created that act for a purpose. Okay? And I don't think it's only for procreation. I think there's other reasons that go along with that. For pleasure and intimacy um, goes along with that. But he created it, and he governs it. And one of the reasons we have massive repercussions in our day is because it's been taken out of the context he set up. Okay, so all of this is tied to God. Look at verse 1 with me. It talks about this is how you please God. Verse 3 says this is God's will. If you want to know God's will, a lot of people spend a lot of money, read a lot of books, Spend a lot of time in prayer trying to find out God's will. There are some things you don't have to look very far. And this is one of them. This is God's will. And then the knowledge of God that life is determined by knowing God. In verse 5, look what it says there. It says you're not to, uh, you're to learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Okay, and that is, uh, and that in this world, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. I'll talk about that in just a second. We're we're coming to the close here, but I wanted to mention this: that the knowledge of God affects this, and He compares those who are Christians with the pagans, and He says, "You're to control your bodies in the Lord." In other words, God wants us and enables us and empowers us. Do you believe that to have self-control? Okay, He does. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit's working within us, then we can have self-control. No one should say, I can't. Come on. 
Now, I don't mean that you're not struggling. I don't mean that you don't need extra help, like somebody to keep you accountable. I don't mean that. What I mean is nobody should say, ultimately, I can't. What they really mean is I don't want to. We can, with God's help, do what he's asked us to do. And so the knowledge of God shows that Christians control their appetites, but the pagans don't control them because they're driven about by the passions of lust. Their desires drive them about. They're sensual. Sensual means to be, to be motivated by the senses, what you can touch, what you feel. We're not like that. We shouldn't be like that. Christians, we're driven by the Holy Spirit. We keep in step with the Spirit. We find that there is a, a war that takes place within us, the flesh and the Spirit. They're contrary to one another, and we're to obey the Spirit. We're to keep in step with the Spirit. We're to give no place to the flesh. And God and His power can enable us to do that. And I hope you'll find today that this is not in any way um, condemning. I'm not trying to in any way condemn um, anyone. I'm trying to encourage you. There's freedom. There's a vision that God has for all of this. And there's freedom to live within that with blessing. Okay? The opposite of that would be detrimental to us. But the knowledge of God um, changes us. We have the knowledge of God, and therefore we're not driven about by passionate lust. In verse 7, it says this is God's calling. Look at what it says there. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives. And then verse 8 shows that God's, this is God's instruction. And if you reject this instruction, you're not rejecting Paul. You're not rejecting me. You reject the Lord who gives us his Holy Spirit. But that's serious, isn't it? Like, this goes beyond like, you know, I just don't like what this dude's saying. This is from the Lord. It's important, okay? So the thing that it often comes down to when we talk about these appetites is, is sex a God or is God God over sex? See, when you put it this way, the sexual lives of believers are God-directed, they're God-restricted, and they're God-judged. In other words, it is a response to God and it's accountable to God. In fact, the only reason that we're talking about this today, I just want you to know, is because sexuality relates to loving God and loving others. And it's the passage that we, that we find here before us today. We need to hear what God has to say. We need it in our day. Come on, isn't it true that it's everywhere? There's, there's uh, sensuality everywhere. And I'm not suggesting we have to go bury our head in the sand, but I'm saying that we need to respond to all of this in the ways that God directs us to. Verse 6 shows us that we're not to wrong our brother or sister in this way. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, this is God's will. God's will is sanctified, avoiding. First is a positive, be sanctified. Second is a negative, avoid sexual immorality. It's what we shouldn't do. The first is what we should do. The second is what we shouldn't do. The third is what we should do. Control your own body. Okay. The fourth is a negative, what we shouldn't do. And then in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of their brother or sister. Here, wrong means to transgress the will and law of God by going beyond prescribed limits. Different translations, uh, like the King James has go beyond. Uh, That would be strange without some context to understand exactly what's meant. Transgress, ESV, REB, infringe his rights. And the Bible for everyone says break this rule. No one should break this rule. Go beyond this, and that means to step over a boundary that would violate them. We're not to wrong one another in this way. 
And he doesn't mean just believers, but he's talking within the context of the church. But this should be true. Like, you can't justify sexual immorality because the person you're sleeping with is not a believer. Right? Hey, guess what? Next week we're going to talk about something else. (laughs) All right? Here we have uh, the other thing is that we're not to do is take advantage of, and that means to exploit. This is to use someone for your advantage and to their detriment. You should never do that. And this is one way that people can do that is to find a partner, derive sexual pleasure from them, even though it hurts them, but you benefit from it. He says no one should do that. Okay, Don't take advantage in that way. Um, the SV has no one should wrong. That's surprisingly imprecise, but that, nevertheless, it's there. Uh, NLT, cheat. Um, one one uh, dictionary says the desire to have what is forbidden more than one's due without regard for hurting one's neighbor. In other words, greedy, but not greedy in a monetary way, greedy in a sexual way. Like, I can never get enough, and I can never have enough partners. That's wrong. There's something wrong in us when we're like that. We need to bring that before the Lord and let him heal our heart so that we live differently. Okay? Um, then it goes on to say, and as I said, we're coming to a close here, God will punish. The Lord is the punisher of all such sins. You might like this if you're a Marvel fan, but uh, some translations call him the avenger. He's the avenger of all such sins. The Lord will punish those. Actually, it says in the NIV, he will punish, but the, the, the Greek there says that he is the punisher or the avenger, that that's what he does. He responds in this way to such sins, as we told you, and Paul says, and we warned you before. So in his three weeks there, somewhere, around, somewhere he got around from Jesus died and rose again to, hey, don't be sleeping around. Somehow he got to that in those three weeks that he was there in Thessalonica. Now he's writing to them and reinforcing this because he knows how sexualized that culture is. Verse 8, we need to live by God's authority. Notice uh, what it says here in verse 8. It says, um, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but rejects or but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, just to comment on this, we'll wrap up. But here it says, if you don't listen to this instruction, you're not uh, ignoring Paul. You're ignoring the Lord. Okay, are you hearing me? This is God's instruction. This verse is scary, and I'll tell you why I think it's kind of scary. It starts with the word reject, but when we think of rejecting something, it means that we are strongly opposed to it. But the Greek word that's here isn't that isn't nuanced that way. Listen, it's like this. The word for reject here means to set aside because you don't believe it can be trusted or relied upon. It doesn't have the it doesn't have the nuance of I really hate that. It has the nuance of dismissiveness. Like it's really not that important. That's why it's scary, because there's a lot of Christians who casually dismiss. Not an outright rejection, like, oh, that the Bible's sexual ethics are so passe and old-fashioned and hateful to modern flesh and whatever. No, a lot of Christians who find themselves in this, they're dismissive. Like, I don't think God really knows how to bring me the maximum pleasure in life, and so I'm going to go seek it for myself. And so it's dismissive. It's not, it's not hateful. It's not mean. 
it's dismissive and therefore rejecting what God has to say. But it's not like sinning with a high hand, you know, the, where it's like, I'm going to go get my way. It's more like, it's not that big a deal. Come on, how many people have you heard that say, well, it's not that big a deal? And it's not that big a deal anymore because we have birth control, and so the side effects, the, the child coming into the relationship that's unwanted isn't there, and we can deal with STDs, and we've got prophylactics and all of that. Sorry to have to talk about that. But these are some of the justifications that people have for going ahead with this lifestyle, that the only reason it was in place to begin with was because of those things. And those things are not mentioned here. What's mentioned here is that you violate your relationship with God and your neighbor. Okay, You steal from them. You steal intimacy from them. You steal intimacy from their future spouse. Right? You, you harm them, and a bond is created there that's not easily broken. And so if you're not going to make that commitment it's going to be a hard time to break free. You see, there's, there's a lot of things that go along with this. And, you know, if there's not a committed relationship to go along with this and there are children born, fatherlessness is a, an epidemic, isn't it? A pandemic, maybe a better word for it. And part of the reason is there's not commitment that goes along with this act, that we think that we can do one thing without the other. Um, Dalrymple tells a story in his book about a, a nurse. She, she's a really beautiful nurse that worked at his hospital. And um, she fell in love with one of her patients, the, a patient. And the patient, I don't know how, well, how good that is, but she fell in love with the patient. And the patient ended up um, leaving his wife. He was going to divorce his wife, and he started living with her. And so she wanted to get married really bad. I want to marry you. And the guy refused to do it. And finally, um, he came across the guy one day when he came in the hospital. He said, why won't you marry her? And he said, Doc, it's just a piece of paper. And he said, if it's just a piece of paper, then why not do it? You know what I mean? If you're going to consider it just a little thing, what's the big deal? Just go ahead. But he wouldn't do it, and I think there are probably other reasons for it. Listen, this, this is not harmless fun when it leads to broken lives. Notice, too, those reasons, unwanted pregnancy, STDs, violence from sexual jealousy, violation of marriage vows, corruption of true intimacy. Those we would defraud, that's not the main point here. The main point is that it would violate God's design and his calling for us as Christians. Let me say this. I've thought about this on the way to church, and I need to say it. Call for sexual purity is not just for Christians. It's for everybody. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon humanity. And I think in some ways, there are, there are um, wraths that are inherent within the act. You understand that there's punishment that goes along with doing certain things just because it, it's done outside of God's design. It's already there. The punishment, some of it's already built in, and then God is the avenger. You don't want to be on the scary side of him. But this is for everybody especially Christians ought to hear what God has to say on this. Come on, are you with me? All right. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your grace's attention. Next week, we talk about love. That'll be nice. Would you bow your heads with me? God wants us to be holy unto him.
And I, I would ask you today to consider these things here. This is the, the invitation. If you want to come pray at the altar, I want you to know there's a variety of reasons that we could come pray at the altar and spend some time with the Lord before we go. Here's the first thing. Just let's bow our heads and think about this. First is sexual sin is serious, but it's not unforgivable. And you don't have to bear that reproach your whole life. God is a forgiving God, and he sees you in light of his mercy and forgiveness. And he can redeem that which uh, sin has taken from us, and he can put us on a good direction in life, and he can, as David said, he can redeem our life from the pit. So God's good like that. I don't mean that every consequence is taken away. I do mean that he can still be glorified in it. He still give you a fulfilled life and a purpose in him. So today, maybe you want to say to the Lord, you can do that at your seat. You can do that here. You can do that as you stand. Lord, forgive me if I failed you in this area. Number two is there are some here that have been sexually victimized. And you need to know that God can heal you and your identity can be changed to be a victor rather than a victim. I don't want you to feel that if things have happened to you outside of your control, that you're under guilt or that God somehow sees this as your fault. Augustine wrote about this back in the uh, attack of Rome about how some women were raped and violated and many thought that they had committed some kind of sin. And he said that they, though that may have happened to their body, it didn't touch their soul. And I want you to know that there is still innocence if you've been victimized in that way. Number three is, I would encourage you today to accept God's instruction on this place of sex in our lives and ask for a change of mind if you need to. Maybe some need to stop watching the stuff you're watching. You may need to put the brakes on a relationship. You might need to take a new direction. Maybe it's just as an adopting of a new attitude about all this. We've been laissez-faire about how bad it is, and we need to adopt the attitude that God has about it that is serious stuff. And the last thing here today, and all of these are things that we can pray about at the altar or at our chair, is parents don't let school and friends and culture shape your kids' understanding of what sexuality is about. It's distorted. You need to respond to it in a Christian way. You need to be thinking Christianly on these things and passing that on so that the confusion that's in our world isn't replicated again and again. Christian home should be one where we understand the place and the meaning of all of this and honor God with our lives and our bodies. Amen. Father, thank you, Lord, for this challenging word today. Thanks for your help in bringing it. I just ask, Lord, you speak to our heart. And, Lord, if there's some way that we need to appropriate this to our life in a practical application, help us to see what it is. Maybe, maybe these things only touch the fringe of where we're living, and, and we just simply need to say amen to the attitude. And maybe for others, there's a deep-seated issue that you need to work on in terms of either being victimized or having shared responsibility in the blame. We just ask, Lord, that you would respond to us according to these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.